G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 9, Panama. From El Cuco, El Salvador, to Playa Santa Catalina, Panama, was 1,500 kilometres by a series of buses and boats. Our journey took us backwards on some now familiar roads through Nicaragua and Costa Rica. It took us about two weeks, with some stops along the way. First up was Playas Negras in El Salvador, which seemed to be one of those towns in Latin America where all the beautiful girls of the region gather, though perhaps our five days hard camping in the wilderness at Punta Scorpio shaped this perception. From Playas Negras, we bust to La Union, spending some of the journey ducking low-hanging telephone wires while riding on the roof rack, idiotically, again. Having survived that stupidity, we commissioned a kind of water taxi to take us on a scenic 50-kilometre dawn cruise across the Gulf of Fonseca to a village called Potosi Chinandega in northern Nicaragua. Here we successfully, surprisingly, haggled with the border guard about the price of our entry visa. Then we bust three hours south to Leon, Nicaragua's second largest city. Here we found the first newspaper we'd seen for six weeks and discovered Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls had just beaten the Phoenix Suns 4-2 in the NBA Finals. After a pointless trek to El Transito to look for surf the next day, Mike, Steve and Andrew headed for the airport at Managua, Nicaragua's capital city. Steve and Andrew were returning to their respective homes in Australia and Florida. New Zealand Mike was flying to Costa Rica, where we'd meet him a few days later. This left Andy and me as travel partners. Andy was a talented young surfer from Bird Rock on the southern coast of Australia. He'd started his American safari in Los Angeles, then travelled south through California and Mexico to El Salvador, where we'd met. He was keen to explore the ways further south in Central America, so we teamed up. Our first day's travel took us towards Nicaragua's southern border. The journey took us through Ribas, a small town an hour's local bus ride from Popoyo, where Joy and I had found great waves a few weeks before. I promised Andy a small detour would be worthwhile, so at the Rebus bus station we raced to catch the day's last bus to Popoyo. The closest the bus got us to the waves left us with a hot, hard one-hour walk with all our luggage on dusty tracks that I hoped were the same ones Joy and I had driven down a few weeks before. It's fair to say that half an hour into this trek, Andy wasn't rating my leadership of the expedition very highly. So it was just as well the waves were pumping when we finally arrived. With the last of our energy, we threw our bags on the sand and paddled out at the reef down the beach. The waves were glassy and purple gold in the sunset, and we had it to ourselves. We felt like the only surfers in the world. Andy rode the right with great power and style, as I'd imagined he would after watching his sure-footed approach to Punta Scorpio. Returning to the beach near dark, we set up our tent and settled down to dinner. Ah yes, dinner. We hadn't had time to buy food before catching the bus back in Rebus, but I'd promised Andy there would be a tienda, a small shop in Spanish, somewhere on the way where we could buy food and water. This was a pretty safe bet in Central America, but for once no roadside tienda appeared. So we'd been parched and starving even before we surfed. 
Digging through our luggage, we discovered one small pack of dry biscuits, one old orange, and a half-green pineapple I'd bought a few days before in El Salvador in the vain hope it would one day ripen. Andy wisely chose to abstain from the pineapple, but hunger beat me, and I shredded the roof of my mouth on the jagged, acidic flesh. This vicious fruit salad was washed down with half a glass of sandy Pacific salt water. With nothing to look forward to for breakfast, we fell asleep knowing a five-hour round trip back to Rebust for food and water would be needed if we wanted to surf again. Luckily, in a way, a storm blew in from the sea after midnight. At dawn the ocean was an unsurfable grey mess, so an agonised withdrawal from beautiful empty waves was avoided. After a long, hard trek out, then a long wait for the 90-minute bus ride, we arrived back in Rebus and caught up on dinner, breakfast and lunch in one frenzied swoop at the market. This was the first day of colder, bad surf weather we'd seen for a while, and it blessed us with the perfect travel day. From Rebus, it was a simple bus ride south to the Costa Rican border. Here, the sullen border guard denied us entry into his country until either we showed him we were taking anti-malarial medication, which we weren't, or he injected us with anti-malarial vaccine. Sorry, what? As anyone knows, anti-malarials aren't injected, and we knew that any syringe this bozo stuck into us could be riddled with AIDS, hepatitis and whatever else. As cool as James Bond in a tight spot, Andy reached into his day pack and produced a half-finished container of antibiotics, telling the guard this was the anti-malarial medication we were both taking. Genius. We watched as the guard pretended to read the prescription written in English, then inspect the pills as if he was a pharmacist. It would have been funny if the stakes hadn't been so high. Eventually, reluctantly, he conceded defeat and allowed us into Costa Rica. Whether the danger of paying an expensive bribe was more real than the chance of being stabbed with a needle, it was great thinking under pressure by Andy. So we ran from the border crossing and caught the last bus leaving for Liberia, the biggest town in northern Costa Rica. Six weeks earlier, on our first day in Central America, Joy and I had passed through here on our way to the Great Waves at Witch's Rock. This time, Andy and I jumped from one bus to another at the Liberia bus station and got the last two seats on the cold, dark, six-hour night bus to San Jose, Costa Rica's capital. It had been a hard, good day. In 18 hours, we'd covered only 400 kilometres, but each of the six stages of the journey, from the walkout of the Popoyo Beach campsite in the early morning to the arrival in San Jose just before midnight, had been an achievement to celebrate. The next afternoon in central San Jose, we went to the bank, posted letters and tripped over our shoelaces at what seemed to be some sort of open-air fashion parade. At the post office, I made one of the few phone calls that year to my parents in Sydney. Back in 1993, making an international phone call from a less developed country was a real palaver. International phone lines were usually only available at the main post office in the largest towns. You'd wait in a queue to book and prepay for three minutes of painfully expensive call time. Then you'd wait in another queue to use a telephone housed in a stuffy, smelly, allegedly soundproofed cubicle. You'd pick up the sticky phone and listen while the post office operator dialed the number for you. And you'd keep your fingers crossed that you'd get a connection that didn't have a horrible crackle or disorienting echo. 
With phone time being both rare and expensive, you'd talk as fast as you could and try to stay focused on the most important topics. You kept your eyes on the clock, knowing that when your three minutes were nearly up, the operator would interrupt your conversation to demand more money or your call would be cut off. The central post office in San Jose was one of the rare post offices that allowed you to receive return calls from overseas. So when my three minutes ended, my parents phoned me back. Over the last six months, I'd posted them a few postcards and letters to let them know where I was and what had happened to me. But since I was constantly moving in no guaranteed direction, they'd been unable to post anything back. So with six months' family news to download, the chat was fast and furious. The last minute of the call was spent catching up on cricket news. Australia had just belted England in the first two Ashes tests, with Michael Slater averaging over 100 in his first two test innings and Shane Warne bowling Mike Gatting with what will be forever known as the ball of the century. Watch it on YouTube if you're curious. It's a ripper, and it's one of Richie Benno's best moments in deadpan commentary too. Later that day, we reunited with New Zealand Mike and went to see Falling Down, the movie where Michael Douglas implodes under the pressure of life in Los Angeles. This film ended any last thoughts I was having about visiting California before crossing the Pacific to Sydney. That confirmed that my path home would meander through the west of South America as far south as my savings would take me. Our next stop was Puerto Viejo, a day's bus ride away on Costa Rica's Caribbean coast. The town's main wave, Salsa Brava, had recently become another favourite of the American surf magazines, so we thought we'd give it a shot. Andy loved it and said it was a bit like surfing backdoor pipe in Hawaii, which he'd done. But Mike and I weren't good enough to fight for the steep drops and wide barrels in the 30-strong crowd. Due to its recent fame, Salsa Brava was attracting a lot of good surfers, as well as some wannabe alphas who wanted to say they'd conquered it, even when they hadn't. This made a challenging wave even more challenging. It was like surfing somewhere like DY Point in Sydney on a weekend, which was exactly what this trip was designed to avoid. After a couple of stressy, unsuccessful go-outs, Mike and I went exploring the tropical jungle coast for undiscovered waves instead. Another highlight of our three days in Puerto Viejo was staying in the bird and monkey-filled forest at a cottage called Quiscadee. Here we again met Lundy and Mel, who we'd last seen in El Salvador a few weeks before. On the last day of June, Mike, Andy and I crossed the funky river bridge at Sishayola that marked the border between Costa Rica and Panama. From there we took the bus to Almirante for the night. In the morning, we rode the now-discontinued ferry service through the beautiful Bocas del Toro archipelago to Chiriqui Grande, where a six-hour bus ride took us through even more majestic scenery in the Fortuna Forest Cerro Santiago mountain range. Completing our 500-kilometre journey that day, we rode another bus to Sona. The next day, Mike and Andy took the early morning minibus 70 kilometres south on a slow, rough road through mostly undeveloped jungle to Playa Santa Catalina on the Pacific coast. Reputedly, this was the location of Panama's best wave. While they explored for surfside accommodation, I stayed in Sona for the morning to gather the provisions we'd need for what we guessed would be a week-long stay. Loaded up with four big plastic bags full of rice, oats, fruit and vegetables, along with my two surfboards and backpacks, I followed Mike and Andy to the coast that afternoon. My first glimpse of salt water at Hikako 
was confusing. What I thought was open ocean was the surfless Gulf of Montijo, but I only realised that an anxious half hour later, after the bus had headed directly inland to arrive at another coast. Here the road terminated in a tiny settlement called Santa Catalina, but even this stretch of coast looked wrong. Directly offshore, a long island blocked any swell from reaching the ugly black sand beach. After all the hard travelling, had we come to the wrong place? The only feature of this alarming dead end was a tiny corrugated iron tienda. Yes, Spanish for shop, selling mostly cigarettes and soft drinks to the very occasional bus traveller. I cautiously approached the disinterested shopkeeper to ask, Disculpe, senor, donde son las olas? Which was my attempt at, excuse me, sir, where are the waves? Barely looking up, he seemed to raise his eyebrows in the direction of a red dirt path that ran over the hill behind his shop. It was a long, hot slog with my backpacks, double surfboard bag and the four plastic bags of food. In 200 metres, the rough track had crawled up and down three small hills. After 15 minutes, with no confidence that I'd understood or could trust the shopkeeper's advice, I stashed my surfboards behind some bushes just off the path. Pushing on with just my backpacks and the bags of food, I wondered if I could hear waves, or was it wishful thinking, or gusts of wind in the trees. A few minutes later, I saw Andy coming to meet me on the path. He and Mike had found just one lonely empty house facing the ocean, but no one around to ask if it could be rented. In fact, the only sign of life either of us had seen in Santa Catalina was the miserable shopkeeper. Andy took the food bags from me and led me half a kilometre through the trees to a handsome house built on a headland that looked over the proverbial gold at the end of the rainbow. Far out to sea, big, empty, dark blue-green waves were breaking in a forest-rimmed, dreamscape bay. From 400 metres away, we could hear the crack of the wave's lip as it hit the water. It was magnificent and daunting. In the fading evening light, there was much to do, and suddenly we had all the energy we needed to get it done. We dropped the food and packs in the garden and jogged back to collect my surfboards. We were wondering if we should just try to find a way inside the house on the headland. Through the windows, we'd seen that it belonged to a surfer, from the pictures hanging on the wall. Surely a fellow surfer wouldn't mind if we let ourselves in and stayed a few days. Luckily, this twisted thinking ended when we returned with the boards and met Mike waiting for us in the garden. He'd found another empty house half a kilometre east with an even better view of the bay, a terrace where we could cook some dinner by candlelight and the lawn where we could camp for the night. We lugged our gear there, set up our tents, made a simple dinner and fell asleep listening to the crash and wash of the waves. At first light, we knew we'd be having one of the surfs of our lives.
But in the morning, before we'd even had a chance to look at the ocean, our first discovery was the evil genius of the Panamanian Noceum. This wretched insect is so named because you really can't see them. They're so small they can fly clean through the tiny holes in your average brand new mosquito net. And even though you can't see them, they still have a proboscis that's big enough to stick through your skin and drink your blood. How does that work? They leave bites more itchy than mosquitoes, but they leave more of them, and some of them hurt. Luckily, they only come out to feed at dawn and dusk, and only when there's no wind, so their assault wasn't constant. But it took us a few days to figure out the only way to survive them was to stay fully clothed at dawn, dusk, and while sleeping, and any uncoverable body parts had to be soaked in carcinogenic DEET repellent. Yuck! Our second discovery that morning was the bay's three-and-a-half-metre tidal range. The spot where big waves had been breaking at the previous day's high tide was now a vast, dry rock platform. There were still waves breaking further out in the bay, but they looked smaller and less lined up than what we'd expected. Nonetheless, with the no-CM itch driving us bonkers, Andy and I decided to go for a surf. We spent about 20 minutes hobbling across 300 metres of sharp, sometimes slippery, black rock reef before we could throw ourselves in the ocean. The waves were disappointing and our feet got even more scratched up on the long walk back. We didn't bother with a low tide surf again. When Andy and I returned from our surf, we found Italo, the owner of the house, and three of his friends waiting for us. They'd driven six hours from Panama City that Saturday morning and were pretty pissed off to find our tents and baggage littering the garden of their holiday house. It was lucky that Mike had been there to make our apologies and clear our stuff away or the Panama boys might have gathered it up and dumped it in the forest. We diplomatically made ourselves scarce by going for a long walk while they shared the ever-improving waves on the incoming tide with no gringo presence. This was a good move on our part. Once the Panama lads saw we had the good manners to give them their right of way as locals, they were keen to be friends. They insisted we stay for dinner and allowed us to camp on their lawn for another night. Better still, Italo wanted us to be his house sitters for a couple of weeks. We'd pay 150 US dollars for the fortnight, about three dollars each a night for one of the world's greatest surf shacks, and we'd pay one of the local senoras another 50 US dollars for cooking our dinners and keeping the house clean. This was Italo's way of assisting one of the local families and injecting some money into the local economy. On the weekends, we'd leave the house free for Italo and his mates and go back to camping on the lawn again. Too easy. No worries. Score. In the morning, we cooked breakfast together, then shared a cracking surf as the tide came in. After lunch, the Panama boys went back to the city, leaving us with the house of our dreams, apart from the noceums, and some badly needed spare food. Downstairs was a combined cooking area, to call it a kitchen would be an exaggeration, and lounge, though there was no furniture, only cushions. Up a wooden ladder was an open-plan sleeping area with stretcher beds and a front-on view of one of the prettiest bays in Central America. We drank and washed in rainwater gathered from the roof. If you're interested in going there, I think it still exists as On the Reef Pension at Santa Catalina. We lived in paradise for the next fortnight, and it nearly killed us. It was just as well we'd bought a week's supply of oats, rice, pasta, lentils, corn and garlic at the Sona Market. 
because there was nearly no food to buy in Santa Catalina. The locals were subsistence farmers of the land and sea who grew and caught only what they needed. And with no cash economy, there were no shops, apart from the cigarettes and soft drinks only bus stop tienda. Our housekeepers somehow found us some fish, some sweet potato, and once, at great expense, a papaya. We also found a small mango tree growing wild, though it was barely old enough to produce fruit. To get more food from Sona would involve a tortuous eight-hour round trip and a day of waves missed, so we tried to make our one-week's food supply last for a fortnight by instituting strict rations. We limited ourselves to two small meals a day. Around mid-morning, depending on what the tide was, we'd have a cup of porridge each, teamed with cinnamon and occasionally mango. At sunset, we'd eat the food prepared by Senora from the food we'd brought and the food she'd found. But our diet was nowhere near enough to fuel our hours of surfing, so we spent each day, even directly after meals, learning to live with hunger. It was a great education in how billions of people live every day on this planet. A mark of our hunger was the method we invented for not killing each other over food. The necessity that mothered this invention was the arrival of the papaya, which Senora had gone to great lengths to buy for us from one of her friends. But how was it to be cut up into three exactly equal portions? We fetched the two biggest plates we had, and the longest knife, and the three of us sat in a circle on the ground with the papaya. One of us was elected to carefully cut a level cross-section of papaya onto the second plate. Then the second plate, the slice of papaya, and the knife were solemnly passed to the left, to person two. His job was to cut the slice into three equal pieces. While the other two watched silently, person two inspected the slice of papaya for variations in thickness. It was his decision, and his alone, on where the three cuts were to be made. Despite our desperation to get our hands on the next mouthful of papaya, this decision took time, and no comment from persons one or three was permitted. Once the cuts had been made, the plate, papaya and knife were passed to person three. He had the privilege, or the curse, if he made the wrong decision, of estimating which of the three pieces was marginally bigger. Understandably, each piece had to be sized up from every angle. While person three had the best view, persons one and two made their own less informed guess at which piece was the biggest. So while person three edged towards this decision, the air buzzed with silent calculations. Only when person three had finally chosen their piece were comments about the wisdom of the choice permitted, and it was a matter of colossal sensitivity. Relationships could be soured for hours by an unkind comment. Luckily, the wisdom of person three's choice was only a momentary focus, because now person one had to choose from the remaining two pieces. This entailed more tense calculation than more commentary when the deed was done. This left person two with the last remaining piece. Once we'd got the most possible value out of our mouthful of papaya, person two had the responsibility of choosing the thickness of the next slice to be cut from the gradually diminishing papaya. And so it went, the roles of slicer, divider, first chooser and second chooser, passing to a different person each cycle. 
I doubt we were the first humans to develop this system, but it was fascinating to see how we figured out a plan for fairly sharing food instead of killing each other. Our ongoing hunger meant that each of us developed a different biorhythm, if that's the term. In between meals, we spent our energy very mindfully, trying to store it up for the daily surfs through the high tide hours. With differing sleep patterns and metabolisms, we rarely surfed together. This also gave us some space from each other, which by the second week was becoming more necessary. Luckily, I wasn't surfing by myself when I attempted a late takeoff on a sizable wave and got pitched through space with only my toes connected to Elwood, my still new surfboard. By the time we hit the water, Elwood and I were only separated by half a metre, and Elwood had flipped fins up. The back of my head smashed backwards onto Elwood's rail, just a lucky few centimetres from the tip of the outside fin, and I saw white for a few seconds. Andy saw the disaster from the channel and kept an eye on me while I paddled blindly back out. There's a lot of blood on your elbow, he said. I hadn't felt anything except the blow to my head, but at the same time of that impact, my elbow had been smashing through the fibreglass and thick wooden stringer on the bottom of the board. It was a long, solemn paddle back to shore. Luckily, Mike had brought some ding-fixing chemicals, so the next day we used most of it to roughly patch up the deep crater. Despite this cock-up, this might have been the best two weeks surfing I ever managed. For six months, I'd barely spent a day when I didn't surf at least once, and most of the waves on the trip had been long, uncrowded, and not too dangerous, the type of waves that let you step up. You'd think after all this time riding some of the best waves of my life that it'd be unlikely that I'd get excited about yet another wave and the surfing I was doing. But my diary records a dozen surfs at Santa Catalina, where I reckoned I'd reached a new level, however modest that was. And this despite the constant hunger, the no and the blow to the head. The low tides and night times were spent writing letters, songs, diaries and stories and planning for the short and long-term futures. Andy decided he'd spend the last few weeks of his trip back in Mexico, where he'd found his favourite wave a few weeks before. Mike and I firmed up on our plan to work together in the cafe he was going to open near the university in Dunedin. Mike had enough funds for just another few weeks on the road, so we decided to spend them travelling through the north of South America together, writing songs for the band we'd have as a side project to the cafe. When Andy caught the bus out of Santa Catalina at the end of the second week, I went with him as far as the nearest town with a phone to research the cheapest flights to Colombia from Panama City. On July 19th, Mike and I left Playa Santa Catalina and took an all-day series of bus rides to Panama City. As our bus neared the city in the dark, we saw the lights of the Panama Canal from our highway bridge. The next day, we did the usual city stuff, bank, post office, photos developed and cake shops compared and we paid for our flight to Cartagena on Colombia's northwest coast. On our last night in Central America the Panama City boys we'd met in Santa Catalina took us round to their smart apartment then out into the night. Despite my protests they were determined to show us what they claimed was the finest strip club in Latin America. I know some of you will roll your eyes, each for different reasons, but while the others went inside, 
I hid on the floor of the car's back seat, waiting to be murdered by the dodgy crew searching through the club's dark car park for an easy car to rob. If I was alive at lunchtime the next day, I'd be in South America. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. There's also an Instagram page if you search up jameswoho. underscore W-O-H-O. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast... Look up Rod Mori at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.